Hello, fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. This is the 1420 Podcast with your hosts, Andrew, and my good friend Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? I'm good. I started hitting the White Claw early. You did? White, not just White Claw, White Claw and rum. And I don't Dude, think it gets... tell everybody. Oh, I'm gonna, because I don't think <laughs> I don't think what we're drinking gets any more basic. I'm even drinking out of a stemless wine glass. Yeah, that is a stemless wine glass. It's a good looking stemless wine glass. It is, so. and it's good filled with White Claw and, and Bacardi. And you know, I've got this, uh, I don't know what you'd call this. Uh, I call those tumblers. This is like a Macy's tumbler. That's funny. Like. I, I have a whole set of those too. That's what I usually drink scotch out of. Sometimes snifters, but usually that. I, I like a thinner rim than this. Yeah. The rim on this is a little oh. thick. I want a nice thin rim. Oh, I I dig those because I feel like they have a really thin rim. Ding. Ding. How are you, man? So good. So tired. I uh, had a very long weekend. I started work. I got up for work at 3 a.m. on Friday. Decided to be in early. And I worked all day. And then I left from work to go wait, hunting. Wait, 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 wait. You're muted. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I muted myself and then I tried to talk to you. Wait, so you started work at 3? Well, I got up at 3 to be at work at, at 6. And I have to drive an hour to get to work. So anyway, I got up at... Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Got to Elk Camp at 1.30 in the morning. So for those of you doing the math, that's 20 and hyphen. 21 and a half hours. Your math is wrong. You yeah. can't say for those doing the math and then screw up the math. I'm helping you. So because right. you I screwed it up too. So for I was up and then I got up a few hours later and hunted all day and unfortunately did not get anything on the ground. But we worked a couple of elk right at right as the sun was starting to dip down below the mountains. And it's almost like they knew it because we were working them and they were starting to get closer and closer and closer. And I lifted up my bow to see if I could still see my pins. So uh, the way archery optics work is their fiber optic tubes that catch light and illuminate. So when you can't see your pins anymore, it's no longer legal shooting hours is kind of a philosophy I've always gone off of, even though it might still be legal shooting hours, but I couldn't see my pins. So we packed up and hiked the five miles uphill uh, foreign some ways. No, just one way. Because so the where we camp is up on top of a mountain, because that's where we can access on the public side, and then there's no. It's all roadless down on the backside. So whenever we hunt, we like drop into the pit of despair. So basically, no matter what, at the end of the day, we know we're going to gain two thousand or more feet in elevation to get back to beer and bed. Right. And because I was <laughs> out there for such a short period of time, I didn't even set up a tent or roll out a sleeping bag or a sleeping mat. I just slept in the back seat of my truck brutal which was both comfortable and uncomfortable because of the angle of the back seat it just rolls you into the upright part of it which was nice but my hips hurt yeah um so yeah i did that and then you did family pictures today no those got canceled on account of rain so i was able to get home and not look like an, a wild animal in the photos you uh, still have uh, i still have some green grease paint, grease paint my facial hair yeah <laughs> that'll be gone tomorrow it's not a big deal um and now here i am and here you are worn out here you are. You know, my weekend was much less eventful. I had I had a soccer jamboree and then soccer games. That's more exhausting than ten miles uphill. No, it's not. I love it, man. You, you know, uh, both both kids are just doing way too many activities, and uh, you, you know, Kim just by nature of her job has more accessibility and availability to do those things. So it's really uh, it's pretty cool to be able to to uh, have that hands on and be there and and be encouraging. And but I've got it. You know, it, it's that that parent that parent uh, syndrome where, you know, where I want to sort of overcorrect and I want to 
you know, really what I need to do is just say, that was awesome. Good job, you know, and be uh, supportive. And, but I want to be like, when you were, when you were challenging, you know, you overcommitted on that defense mm. and, you know, it was just not super helpful. And they but, don't understand that yet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, do you? Uh, I do. Okay. I mean, I don't know. A little bit, I guess. That's, I, I mean, I just. Oh, you're making me feel defensive now. You should. <laughs> I'm on the attack. <laughs> well, well, good. Well, we actually uh, are are back Joined. in the saddle. We've got a guest today. Ooh. So we've got on the line here uh, Jeff Sexton of elgintime.com. Jeff, are you there? How are you? Yeah. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Good. So, Jeff, you have a website and a business. Your website is elgintime.com. Right. And you are a watchmaker who specializes in vintage Elgin pocket watches. Is that correct? Well, I, um, I, try, to keep, I try to specialize in American watches, uh, which uh, most of which just, if not 80, 90% of which just happen to be Elgin watches. And uh, I have a lot of information on the website about Elgin watches just because they're the most common and there's a lot of information about them. They're the ones people have. So that's what's mostly out there. So we we were actually acquainted after uh, Andrew and I did our American Watches episode. Uh, a couple of Instagram users directed me your direction and said, hey, uh, there's this fellow who's kind of an expert uh, he's super involved in the social media and the watch game, and uh, you, this was kind of a missed opportunity for you guys, and, and I agreed at the time, and I think I reached out to you, so this would have been s- several months ago at this point. Um, yeah, right. And um, realized quickly you were in Portland, Oregon, which is my hometown. Which, and my hometown. And, and just up the street from us, which is... Which Double is, embarrassing that we didn't reach out. <laughs> and also kind of convenient. It's true. I'm in Portland. <laughs> so, so are you a Portland local? Yes, I was born in Portland. Um, you'd be surprised how much email I get from people that assume I live in Illinois. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and that's all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and is that just by way of uh, what you do, or what's the? Uh... Exactly. Uh, people look it up on the website, and um, then they send me an email, and they ask me, you know which part of town I live in, referring to Elgin, Illinois. And uh, I have to tell them that um, I'm about 3,000 miles from there. Yeah, you, But and, feel free to drive on over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and which part of town do you live in? I, I know some of our folks will be interested. Or, or work in, rather. Careless. Northeast Portland. Okay. Northeast Portland. I live in the Sabin neighborhood, if that means anything to anybody. Well, I mean, it means something to to both of us. We, you know, I grew up in Seventy Second Foster, so uh, former FKA uh, Felony Flats. That's where I currently yeah. live. Not in Portland, but in Felony Flats. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, very cool. Uh, very cool. Uh, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Sure. So, so before we get started, uh, I'll give you just a couple minutes to tell people where to find you, both on Instagram and and wherever else it is that you're putting up information. Most frequently, I know you've got a Plasporo website. So, so tell people as they're listening. Sure. The uh, yeah, I I it, you know it's all kind of in flux. I I posted a lot of stuff to Google Plus when it existed, um, and I used that a lot. 
And uh, that worked great for several reasons. Um, yeah, it, Google Plus was a really easy to use website and didn't require a login to view it and, and uh, handled photos well. Really worked out well for me, but of course Google canned that. So I've been kind of not, I don't know, it's, I, I don't have an anchor social media presence at this time, really. I don't know what it's going to be. There isn't really anything to replace that. I have Elgin Time on, um, on Instagram. And I have, uh, what I do is I post uh, a couple of pictures or, and some just text there a day with current projects. Um, but I post more details and more pictures on the Pluspora site, um, which you can, is, is under uh, an Elgin Time tag that's easily searchable by hashtag uh, Elgin Time on the Pluspora.com site. I kind of settled on that because... Um, it had most of my requirements for uh, social media to, to post things. You know, a lot of my customers are not um, super computer literate. They don't want to create accounts. Uh, you know, uh, it's got to be simple. It's got to be visual um, and not require a lot of, not, not require a login or have a lot of pop-ups or anything. So that site kind of does that. I wonder uh, how so much that has to do with the fact that they're vintage pocket watch enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, chuckle, we're chuckling a little bit about it over here. Yeah. I mean, it's just the reality of it. Um, so for right now, that's the way it is. That site works fairly well. Those on on uh, elgintime.com, I have links to these things. So if anybody's interested, they could just go straight to that page and right on the first page i have links to the instagram and the and the plus Quora, uh, stream your web page um, almost strikes me as a uh like the first chapter chapter chopper uh, the first chapter man i'm white claw and rum what do you want from me uh the first chapter of of an encyclopedia of this passion and you have all these links to tools and to all the all these references and all this in there and it it, it seems like the really like the beginnings of an encyclopedia for some, for just this knowledge base. That's, that's, it's funny. You should put it that way. I I have a a lot of information here. Um, I have a lot of books. I have a lot of, uh, Oh, industry documents and, and, um, technical guides and all this advertising. Uh, I've got a house full of paper and, uh, I've been slowly putting it online uh, because everybody should see it. Everybody should have access to it. It's history. And um, a lot of the stuff is just paper and a lot of stuff is scarce. And it's a big task. And I, I don't know if I'll ever get it all online, but uh, I do. I, yeah, I do like uh, try to put it all online. And, and I, I've been using... Um, Deliberately, as some people may notice with that website, a lot most of it is on Google Sites, or you know their web service, and I try and I keep it um, sites under with a their, C. Uh, no, it's with an okay. S. Okay, I just, it's, I, yeah. it's a free service. Is okay. my point, and I try to keep it under all their thresholds because part of my goal is to have all this stuff online forever, if I can, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't 
I try I try not to have things out there that will disappear if I stop paying for them or something like that. Sure. Because it because um, if I can get it out there and get it into the Google world, then um, you know people have access to this stuff uh, indefinitely. Hopefully, it's hard. It's really hard to preserve things for a long period of time. A lot of knowledge disappears real fast. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mysteries in the Google uh, in the in the Elgin world, for example. Uh, as much information as they left behind, there's a lot of gaps, and it's surprising uh, how quickly those those gaps become just unknown things um, that that we don't know. There's, it's there's a lot of ongoing research in Elgin watches to figure out, you know, which uh, you know when certain things happened or whatnot. And all you have is uh, actual watches and advertising and old catalogs and things. I mean, as much information as they left, it disappears real fast. So I like to, you know, try to help preserve it, put this stuff online um, as best I can, because I, I do have a lot of stuff here, and it's just got to be out there. When, when you're saying you're preserving this stuff, are you working with uh, historic documents? I mean, are you working with source material, or, or how are you... Uh, consolidating all this information and where from this is like we're going a lot farther faster than i want but i want to I, I love where we're at right now so we'll, we'll eventually circle back so i apologize for being a little bit uh unchronological right. with this yeah whatever you want to do the, the um yeah it's interesting um elgin is an interesting company if i could just like take a step back here and you touched on some of this in your prior episode uh they were extremely innovative company and they came up with things like standardizing their parts. They, they invented this. They invented this idea of standardized interchangeable parts where you could look up the watch you have and look up somewhere what part goes where and order it from the factory by a number and get the part that would drop right in, supposedly. In theory, it's not that simple, but um, they tried, and they, they invented that. And and when you say they invented it, you I mean, again, I think we did touch on this a little bit, but not just for uh, American watch companies internationally, right? Elgin was out in front of Elgin was out in front of the line of scrimmage on this thing, right? Oh, absolutely, um, and it's fascinating because it it just is a as a to be very broad about it. It's a um, it's kind of an information science topic, kind of how you organize things. And this, this is happening like before there were computers, before even there was the idea that you should alphabetize things, <laughs> believe it or not. Right, right. I mean, they came up with things like, you know, numbering and naming schemes that are not like what you would do today. For example, uh, you know, if you had a part that was part number 567 or something, and it was, a you know, some certain part for a, for a certain watch, and people could look that up. And then they decided to make a different version of it that had a, you know, a different finish, a different was polished more heavily or something like that. Today, you might think, oh, we'll call that 567B or something. You might think that because you're used to sorting things and alphabetizing things the way we do things today. No, they would, sometimes, in some cases, they would put a prefix on it. They would put a little different letter or number in the front. <laughs> it's still a systematic way of, of indicating. It's a systematic right? okay. way, but, but, but it's different from today. Yeah. Okay. all these things, and my point is that there's all these things in their, in their data that are confusing in, their, in the records that are left behind. It doesn't and work with an Excel spreadsheet the Excel. way you'd want it to. Yeah, right. 
does not. And uh, so I, you know, try to have this information out there and I do the best I can. I mean, some of it is very difficult to work with, with a computer. It just doesn't work that way. They've got like three different part systems that they came up with over the years and they don't overlap the way you'd think. And um, it's just really tricky to get that information out there. And I work on it all the time. I have uh, parts information for my grades on my website and uh, which I know a lot of people use. And I, I, I alter it every month based on, um, you know, mostly watches, uh, an actual watch that I have in hand that's got something weird in it. It's different. You know, it doesn't match what it's supposed to be. And if I get a few of those, I figure, oh, there's a run of serial numbers that have got something different in them. You, you know, that's all. It's an incredible idea, Jeff, and I don't think it's one that we thought about uh, when we were talking about this. And and I suspect that probably a lot of the people who are listening uh, feel the same way. It's an incredible idea to to think about the fact that computers have changed the very way we sort things and number things, um, and, and and that's fine and dandy in and of itself to consider. But when you think about a modern historian using modern implements, uh, Excel spreadsheets or, or whatever it is you're using to, to sort and track these things, the challenges in that, uh, again, something I haven't, I haven't ever considered that, uh, how do you, as you, as you move through, have you developed any tips or, um, not, not tips, but have you developed any practices to, to assist you in that or anything specific that's not super nerdy, uh, super off topic? Uh well, it's it's just it's just something you got to be aware of. Um, I get a I get a fair amount of email from people that have well, Elgin left behind a lot more information than other watch companies because uh, they were a lot more organized. So um, it was a, and, it was a function of organization that they were just that yeah. much further ahead of their peers who who collapsed or went out of business around the same time. Yeah, they they kind of invented this stuff. Um, they were very innovative about um, how how their parts system works. And uh, so I often get email from people that say they want to buy part XYZ for some watch because they think they could fix it and they know that part's broken. But um, the problem is it's not that straightforward because they weren't, well, frankly, they just weren't that good. I mean, the parts uh, are not that standardized you know you, you can never be quite sure what you have it was the early days of this kind of thing and there was still a lot of uh, i suspect in the manufacturing process you know in the, their assembly lines they just uh put whatever they had in the basket that day into the watch and it may not be what is supposed to be there <laughs> and there are a lot of exceptions in the uh there are well-known ranges of of exceptions in the records that aren't really right. Um, so there's a, a lot of, uh, it's kind of deceiving. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, a modern person, say you're finding a part for your car, you know, you can pretty much look that up and order it and be pretty sure that that part will fit in your car. Sure. Sure. <laughs> but with the watches, it's not really so much like that. There's a lot of wiggle room and a lot of uh, exceptions. And uh, 
and frankly, uh, sometimes the parts just don't fit that well, and they have to be altered a little bit to work, which they did at the factory when they made them. But that's just a QA thing. I mean, their manufacturing processes were not as accurate as they are today. Um, so it was early days of that kind of thing. But they, it was a very innovative company, and they're you know, and actually, uh, just to sh shift gears a little bit, they're. Their, their parts handling and, and all that was not their only innovation. Um, this was a, a very progressive company in many ways. They had an early form of employee health insurance um, and, you know, many other things like that. It was uh, kind of, it's kind of the, uh, kind of like working at a dot-com or something in, you know, 1900. They were a progressive startup. Huh. Well, it was, it, they, they employed young people. They tended to employ single people. There was even a, a kind of a, if you look at early demographics in the city of Elgin, Illinois, you can kind of trace this back. There was a, there was a lot of young couples with no children that met at the factory and married, and they both worked there and they both made good incomes. Um, it, it's it's a kind of phenomenon that was unknown in 1900 or days following the Civil War. This was a new thing in American economic and social structures to have young people like owning a house and uh, living in a in a sort of suburban setting in a city like that and having a job uh, that didn't involve working on a farm. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, they were doing something totally new and different. Yes, exactly. And uh, it was a it was a time of shifting economics in in the in the country. And they were right at they, they, that company was right at the forefront of that, and following close on their heels were the other American watch companies. That was the industry of the time. The Hamilton and uh, and, and American Watch Company that. and yeah. So I think we've got it. Let's if you could just give me a quick overview of your company, what it is that you do, because I, I feel like we've got. A, a pretty broad idea of, of your interests, but what is it exactly that you do? I repair people's watches um, in a nutshell. Uh, I get I get watches, old watches. I, like I say, so I try to stick to American makes, um, and uh, I do stuff for people all over the world. Uh, I do it all by shipping, and... Um, I just do uh, the kind of repair and service that they would have. I'm not. I don't restore watches per se. I do the type of repair and service that they would have received at the time using um, pretty much period techniques and materials and within reason where it's practical, and um, get them working and preserved and um, able to be passed on to the next generation, mostly. You, you know, uh, I, I I feel like that's a little bit. I feel like you're probably uh, a, a bit of a self-deprecating fellow by nature, uh, and I feel like you've understated what you do a little bit. Um, but but maybe maybe we come at this on a little bit different angle. Why don't you tell us sort of your background, how you got into watches, what what your education, what your what your history is in the watch industry? Well, um, my grandfather. Uh, attended the Elgin Watch School, which is another uh, kind of innovative thing that they did. 
kind of to understand how innovative that is, think about something like if you're in, in IT, you might get a Microsoft certification or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Elgin created a watch school and they trained young, mostly men, but not entirely. There were women uh, to, re to work on their watches using their standardized methods and parts systems and all that. And they sent them out throughout the country, and they created this kind of uh, reputation. If you buy an Elgin watch and you buy it from somebody that has this certified person at their store, you'll be able to get it repaired, and it'll be solid for a long time. They created that reputation by creating the watch school. They were, they, they, they were very early innovators in creating watch schools. There were others that came later, but... Um, they again they kind of created this my grandfather went to that school in in the mid 1930s and uh he worked on he was a watchmaker's whole career and he's gone now but um i spent a lot of time with him in the early 2000s and uh i well, I, I just, you know, one day um, I do remember sitting and talking to him. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I remember talking to him about his experience with the, the Watch College and his education and his work. Did they call it the Watch College? Yes, Elgin, Elgin Watchmakers College, yeah. That's in so Elgin, cool. Elgin, Illinois, yeah. And he just said to me, uh, so do you think you'd like to learn to work on watches or something to the, that effect? And it just, uh, you know, I thought, Huh, I don't know why my whole life I never thought of that before. <laughs> yes, I would. <laughs> and, uh, like I said, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, we're talking, you know, 17 or 18 years ago. Um, and after that, I spent uh, a lot of time and money learning this stuff. And I spent a lot more time, like grandfather, taking watches apart and, uh, I used to, uh, he lived in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I was in Portland, and uh, I would, when I got enough tools and got kind of, got myself kind of figured out, I would work on watches all week for a couple of weeks or something, drive up there and take everything I'd done to him to look at and, you know, diagnose and uh, help me out and give me tips and, and uh, re you know, tell me everything that... Uh, I'd done wrong, and uh, <laughs> that went on job. a few years yeah. until I kind of learned it, and um, and uh, I began to put together a website and do, yeah, just sort of hang hang out the shingle and do some work for people, and I started slowly at first, but um, it's become what I do uh, you, all you the know, time. You know, I don't mean to be too philosophical, but that sort of feels like a classic apprenticeship uh, you, you, you know, I think that most of the watchmakers that, that Andrew and I are, have become familiar with through, through what we do are folks that have attended watchmaker school in, you know, in Seattle or, or, you know, some of the other places or YouTube. Uh, yes. yeah, that's right. I, I mean, it, it seems to me like you've, you, uh, your educational process was a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit more um, traditional. Traditional, yeah, that's the right word yeah, for it. And I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of that for a couple of reasons. One is my grandfather was very good at what he did, and he had a passion for um, this this type of watch. And um, my grandfather's teacher was a guy named William Semelius, 
was a name you'll see come up in American watchmaking if you kind of dig into it. Um, it was right up there with all the greats. Um, he's a he was a very significant person, and my grandfather had uh, he used to talk about it. I mean, you know, he was my grandfather's teacher. We're talking like sixty years later. My grandfather would talk about this guy like he, you know, just talked to him. Um, he would quote him all the time. Uh, there's a lot of books out there by William Semelius. He was a he was a, a great teacher of watchmakers and he kind of laid down the program at the Elgin Watchmakers College. He was there for many, many years, decades, and uh, was very influential in that era of American, of the, of the American industry through, uh, you know, the, from the twenties into the, into the thirties, a uh, very influential person. Um, and, and that's, and that's part of your legacy. Yeah, I I feel like I, I feel like I'm I'm kind of lucked out there. Uh, I would I would use the word use the phrase lucked out, but my grandfather said he deliberately made sure that he got assigned at the school to that guy because he knew he was the the best teacher, and he he really was. Uh, but I feel like uh, I'm I'm very privileged to have had that connection because it, it is a direct connect. I'm I'm pretty. Uh, young to have such a direct connection to a person of that stature from the 1930s yeah um, yeah it's such a tangible a, one too my grandfather used to say uh he would he would criticize what i did by quoting Semelius. he would say uh well you did a good job on this but Similius would say you used a little too much oil there. Or something. <laughs> I wouldn't say it, but you know, if, if he probably would. <laughs> no, you know that's uh, that's incredible. I you know I, I don't think we're we're sort of you know we're, we're not on video Skype or anything, so we can't see you and you can't see us, but we're making uh, eyes at each other. Some of the story is really incredible. I, I'm actually uh, you, you know we're only a few minutes in here, but I'm feeling really. Uh, I'm feeling really fortunate to have to have you on the show. I, I know that's yeah. kind of that's that's a silly thing to say, perhaps, but uh, the history here. I don't know that we knew what we were getting into, uh, you know, 35 minutes ago. No, we definitely did not. Not not to this magnitude. And I I want to go on to a question of of so when you made this transition, what were you doing previous to uh, taking on the the family mantle or the, this tradition? I was a software engineer for 25 years. That's a hard left. It, I, I, it's a hard left, but I got to say, it doesn't it surprise me at no, all. No, it makes, yeah. it makes sense. I was, no, was going to th- think like an engineer I of know, sorts. Um, I know um, multiple uh, software engineer or IT type people that have gone into some form of watch work. It makes sense. It's It's... I mean, though different, it has all the same disciplines required, the same desire for learn, that tinkering mentality and deliberate tinkering, very tinkering, very much unlike the way Everett and I do, where we just break things and then find a way to fix it. Yeah. Um, but it, that that makes perfect sense. I, I that is exactly yeah, you know, what I imagine what would, where you came another, from. That's another subject. You know, we could talk about. I I um I do think that um, watches. One of the things I've run into a lot is that I think people underestimate how just mechanical and ter- deterministic watches are. You know, these are machines. They're not, it's not magical. 
And uh, their their whole entire function and how they work is well, we're talking about mechanical watches mostly, obviously, but you know, it's it, we're talking about physics and geometry, and uh, that's fascinating. Um, it took me a long time, and I would say I would say it took me more than a year, really, of really thinking about it all the time <laughs> to sort of understand how a normal um, how a regular escapement works. And even at that, <laughs> yeah, you still, sense. I still think about it sometimes. It's still, it's a, it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. It's kind of this weird accident of physics that this even works. Can and you give me a one minute or less answer on how an escapement works? Well, sure. Um, well, there's two ways to answer that. Maybe I can't. So, so yes, but no. Take as long as you need. Just not there's 30 two, minutes. two ways to answer that question. One we, is, we don't have 20 years, Jeff, so we're going to need it in a little bit less than that. The way watch works is it's got a power source. You wind up the mainspring, and the mainspring unwinds. Every wind you put on the crown when you wind the watch is going to come out through the hands every turn. It's all just gear ratios. It doesn't just whiz and come all out at once right. is the escapement. It's called the escapement because it escapes power slowly. So power unwinds from the mainspring slowly. It escapes slowly. Now, there's over the centuries, and, you know, if you look, you know, anybody who's paid attention to watches will encounter this kind of thing eventually. There's been lots of escapements. They have different designs, different ways of doing it. And they're quite different. They're mechanical designs, you know, to cause this to happen. Um, the Swiss lever escapement, as we know it today, virtually almost every mechanical watch, except for the uh, Omega coaxial escapements that George Daniel has invented, um, use the Swiss lever escapement. And uh, that that came into being in widespread use in the 1880s or so. By 1900, no cylinder escapements were made anymore. That's the older type. Um, from, you know, an older technology. And they're just different geometries. Um, you know, you can find pictures of this online and Google it. You'll see how they work. Uh, there's some good animations out there on websites about how this actually functions. But it's, it's fascinating that um, these things are inventions. I mean, people create a way to stop that mainspring from just shooting the gears off as fast as it can. The the way the rate at which the hour and the minute hand turn are just gear ratios to each other. There's, it's like a bicycle. I mean, mm -hmm. they can't at different rates. It's just the way they turn. But how fast it actually moves over the course of a day is a function of the escapement and how much power and how often it beats. When the escapement beats, it releases power to the hands and they move. Contra it, here's a surprising thing. I mean, some people have been surprised to hear this kind of thing when I say it. It doesn't matter how fast or slow the watch is or how fast or slow the hands move. It's almost irrelevant. What matters is how often the escapement releases power. Because the hands are just cosmetic to the machine that's running. So the, because the hands, they jump forward right. when they move. And they move, they jump forward a certain number of times a second. So how often that is, is what governs how accurate the watch reads. Uh, how fast they move when they move is almost irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So the escapement governs that, and the balance wheel in a Swiss lever escapement is what governs 
how often the hands jump forward are allowed to jump forward and in an old pocket watch could be 18,000 times a minute. So, you know, you have, um, the watch just, that just boom, blew boom, my boom. mind. Just thinking about okay. 18,000 times a minute. And, and that's a, that's a five set. That's a five beat per second rate. Yeah. Well, it depends. It, it, yeah. You can do the math, you know, it, it, it's there, there are different ones and, and, um, but the the point is, you know, that's that's what the escapement does. It it causes that spring, the mainspring that's wound, to release its power to the hands and cause them to move a certain number of times a second. If it's too many times a second, the watch will run fast. If it's not enough, it, it runs slow or reads slow, to put it another way. That's what the escapement does. To answer your question, well, and. Uh, and so maybe yeah. a, and maybe a follow on it, and I realize that we are we're venturing very very far out of your uh, your preferred expertise, but the Swiss lever escapement, obviously the classic uh, escapement, the coaxial. You mentioned the coaxial escapement, and, and I think yeah. that we've discussed a few times on the show the coaxial escapement, but very surfacey. We say you know oh it's different and it's cool, and then we move the fuck on. What is what is the difference between? A classic Swiss lever escapement and a coaxial escapement. Well, what is it? I don't know. You need a you need to draw a picture to describe that. The most interesting thing about the coaxial escapement, though, is that it was invented in modern times. Um, this is not something that just happens. Um, there are probably only, I mean, there must there there are only a handful of ways to do this. It's mechanical. It's a. It's geometry. It's physics. There, there are only a handful of ways you can create a mechanical device that releases power at regular intervals in this way. And uh, there are verge escapements. There are cylinder escapements. There are all the older types from the the old old days before that lever escapement, the so-called detached lever escapement, was invented. And when the when that Escapement was invented, it surpassed all the others because it was superior in many, many ways. And that reigned supreme for 100 years or something. Um, sure. And that's, and that's still the way most watches are today. But George Daniels invented a new one. And that's just astonishing. I mean, I can't, I can't explain to people how surprising it is that someone found a new way to do it in modern times, that there's, there is yet another modern, there's yet another way to do it. It is probably a reasonable way to say the reasonable thing to say that no one will ever invent another escapement. Bold uh, statement. was the last one to be found. <laughs> and is, and is that, is that a function of, is that a function of necessity or is that a function of elimination of possibilities? Um, elimination of possibilities, I would say. I mean, there's only, like I say, there, there, there's definitely a finite number of ways of doing it. Um, would any more you just know, be, escape? like, unnecessary because there's at least two now very functional ways to do it? Or would it be, like, we talked to Vero a couple of weeks ago, and these dudes just basically invented a watch with no basis on how to do it. They just, they started with a chunk of metal, and they're like, all right, let's make a watch. And didn't use anything else beyond ingenuity is that is it so is it more function of that's where the natural progression will get you to 
in into one of these two op- two options, or is anything else just not practical? Well, whether or not um, whether or not the uh, coaxial escapement is superior would be a matter of opinion. I mean, a lot of people would say it is, but but it's uh, my my the interest, the thing that interests me about it is just that it is an invention of a new way to do it. It is highly I consider it highly unlikely that anyone else will come up with another way to do it ever. Um, it's, it's just, it's just really fascinating that after all this time, after all the time that people spent working on this kind of thing over the centuries, that in modern times, George Daniels came up with another way to do it. It's, it's very, very unusual and, uh, probably will not happen again. And that, you know, there, um, the goal with the escapement or in a, in a watch in general, a mechanical watch, is to reduce friction. Sure, sure, sure. But as much, efi- much efficiency as you can between the mainspring and the hands. You don't want to waste any power, and you want um, accuracy. You want uh, a certain number of beats per minute. You want it to, to go, you know, accurate. You, you, know, and, you know, Jeff, we talked about this uh, probably more significantly, we talked about this in quartz watches. You know, quartz watches since basically the the dawn of quartz watches in the in the late seventies, early eighties, um, have been incredible. Right? The, there's no quartz watch that's ever been that's been released that's not a very accurate timekeeper, a- accurate enough for anybody's purposes. I, I would I would argue. Um, and, and so, but we've talked a little bit about this. Um, the ongoing achievement in accuracy, you know, high accuracy quartz and thermal compensation and the different crystals, the XY crystals versus, uh, you, you know, some of these, some of these, uh, more, more impractical crystals and, and what that means, what that means in terms of accuracy and friction. And, and, and we also talked a little bit about, <clears throat> we also talked a little bit about, you know, the one second standard, you know, quartz, e- even these very efficient, uh, um, quartz movements uh, still beat at this one second per minute because because a there, there's some second? good one beat one beat per second yes what did I say one second per minute that's wrong <laughs> one beat per second um you you know so we we talked we talked about this uh you you know why is it that quartz movements don't beat at at point you, you know point one five or or whatever it is you you know eight, eight beats per second or 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 eighteen thousand six beats per okay. second why is it they're not doing this well well the answer is maybe two two twofold one it doesn't make any any sense to do it and, and two you you lose efficiency you increase friction you lose efficiency um I I see that I, I see some of that coming through in what you're saying how how does that conversation uh, affect your thought process on this if at all. Well, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, that's that's exactly the kind of engineering trade-offs that go on in the and 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 all. Um, at the end of the day, quartz watches. Well, every watch has an oscillator of some kind that beats a certain number of times a minute. That oscillator then has to release power uh, through the train to the hands. The hands, when I say the train, I you know, at the very simplest level, you've got the dial side train on a pocket watch, which basically governs the relationship between the hour hand and the minute hand, you know. I mean, that's a gear ratio. That's all. So uh, the oscillator releases power at a certain interval to those hands. That's it. 
That's a watch. That's that's all a watch does. Uh, the rest is the details. It's how accurate that number of beats per second, whatever it is, it could whether it's one or whatever, um, you know, is 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 that question, and the rest is kind of um, you know marketing like. You know how how often do you have to change the battery or whatever? What it's its power source. Um, that's all just in the details, but the the essentials of a quartz watch and a mechanical watch are are the same. It's got a power source. It's got some kind of regulator of the power, the escapement, and and you know quartz watches don't have a escapement per se, but they do have an oscillator, which is giving off a beat, an electrical impulse in that case, at a certain number of times per second, whatever it is, and that causes some electronics to release the power. It's basically the same thing. You, you know, I made a statement in our Quartz Watch episode. Uh, I made a statement that I, I can't remember if Andrew signed off on it or not, so I won't attribute it to him, but um, I, I said, you know, this is mechanical. What's happening here is mechanical. We're, we're starting with, with a much higher frequency, but, but we're we're still essentially mechanical. There's there's a number of these uh, flip flops, and um, you, you know we're we're getting the number down from a much higher number, which which is by way of by way of electrical quote unquote electrical components, but we're still at the end of the day taking a beat rate and, and transferring it to seconds, and, and I suspect that's kind of what you're saying. Is that is yeah, that exactly that's exactly what I mean? It, it it the principles are exactly the same. Um, it's just a matter of where that oscillation comes from. For example, um, you know, consider uh, Accutron watches, or even before that, earlier uh, electrical watches that were not quartz. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about here. They only existed for a few years. <laughs> sure, no, we know, and, and we talked about this uh, some. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there were, in fact, Elgin created one of the first, not the first, probably the first kind of, there's some little uh, controversy about that. Um, we we love controversy, Jeff. We that's love our thing. These these watches watches that run on electrical impulse without a quartz watch or or a watch that um, has a balance wheel, and the balance wheel swings back and forth, but it's driven by an electromagnet, and it triggers an escapement. Oh, that's interesting. So, so it's uh, but it but it's not actually driven in the same way that a mechanical watch is driven by sapping off some of the power to keep it going. Instead, it's got an electromagnet and it's kind of self-regulating. There were watches like that. Um, I have a Watham that works like that. Um, you know, the battery powered watch, but it's got a balance wheel and the balance wheel is the regulation, the, re the regulating factor to the, to the, to releasing the power. It's got an escapement, um, but it's operating at a, a pretty, you know, uh, relative to quartz watch, obviously, like really slow beat rate. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, like like a normal mechanical watch, <clears throat> but is but is actually not uh, operating like a traditional mainspring driven watch. Sure. That 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 threshold that 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 uh, period of time where we transition to quartz is fascinating. And yeah. I, I hate and to it, change topics, though. It's all the same. It's it, you've got you've got a power source that's trying to turn the wheels, you know, trying to drive the hands, and you have a regulator in between that's releasing power at some regular intervals. It's all about what drives that regulator. 
So I hate to change topics, but I earlier you said you're when you're repairing these watches, you're getting period pieces, period materials to repair these watches. And where are you sourcing material from that period to be able to make well, these repairs? I mean, how much how much are you are you outsourcing to have things machined custom for repairs and how much are you act, are are finding uh, leftover period equipment like well parts? it's it's interesting that's um that's a challenge uh and it's it's interesting that i think that's it's important to bring that point up something i i tell people a lot about antique watches is that we're well there was a time when everybody had one of these watches and in fact most of everybody had an Elgin watch, for example, because they were just so common. But they were also maintained and serviced everywhere. And so these companies that created these mass-manufactured watches in the early years of industrialization in America mostly, they left behind just mountains and mountains and buckets full and barrels full of spare parts. Um over the last several decades, there's been just a lot. Buying parts has been no problem. There have still been parts houses. Uh, there are people that specialize in them that have large amounts. Um, you can just get on eBay and buy something or whatever. But we are literally right now living through the time where that is severely declining. And Spare parts are becoming much harder to get. Um, I was kind of fortunate in that I got into this at a time when I could still sort of just hoard this stuff, and I have a lot of it. And I inherited some things, and um, I just I have a frankly just a house full of this stuff. I'm imagining uh, your garage right now, and I'm for some reason in my head I'm imagining like. Imagine the living room. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Not the garage. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what, what's your what's your plan for when that supply dries well, up? Well, that's where it gets tricky, and that's why I say I tell people, you know, um, uh, you know, I I I, uh, I often say uh, I would say probably seventy five percent of the people I deal with. Uh, that have a watch they want repaired fall into one of two categories. One is a young person, and by young I mean somebody who's in their 20s, 30s, or 40s who has inherited a watch and wants to use it. They inherited their grandfather's watch and they want it repaired so they can use it. Tracks. The other type of person is a 70 or 80-year-old person, usually a man, who inherited a watch when they were 20 or 30, Mm -hmm. used it for a few weeks, broke it, put it in a drawer and forgot about it. And now it's all they have to remember their grandfather by and they want it repaired. Good thing they still have it. Yes. And, and I often wish I could introduce these two people to each other because I wish young people wouldn't just use these watches like they were just ordinary watches. Because the mainspring is getting damaged. and Yes, because yeah. they're, they're going to be the person consuming that item and... Um, in the age that we live in, where these parts are beginning to dwindle, um, you really don't want to be the last person that uses it. Uh, and it's we're coming to that. Uh, parts, I mean, I, I, there are a lot of parts. Uh, I, I could name like even specific things that I could easily get my hands on even five years ago that today 
um, you can't. Mm-hmm. They're they don't, they're not available anymore. They're gone. They're all gone. And uh, that's even happening to watch crystals in some sizes. Hunter case crystals are very thin. They're very mm-hmm. fragile. In some cases, you can't get a glass one anymore. Hmm. And uh, I don't think people are really aware that that's happening. And it's kind of a generational thing. It just has to do with the amount of time that's passed. We're living right now in that transitionary period. Well, that means, to answer your question, um, they're more expensive. They take longer. Sometimes I have a watch sitting here for two months while I hunt down something. Oh, wow. Um, And often you just have to, if I can, make something. Now, I'm not as good at that as some people. I mean, that's kind of a whole other ball game. Um, I've made staffs and uh, screws. That's about as sophisticated as I get. Um. But it gets harder, you know. It's getting harder and harder every, uh, every year, and it's very noticeable. So, uh, all that being said, what are are you taking any steps to to pass your wealth and body of knowledge on to somebody else, or, or do you kind of have a have a legacy plan? Because just in the conversation that we've had for just shy of an hour, I'm I'm in awe of what what's living inside of your head and and do you kind of do you have a plan to pass that on to the next person do you have people who are apprenticing with you are you are you grabbing anyone off the streets to show them this craft and trade anybody who will listen i mean is that no well i'll talk to anybody that'll listen um most people won't (laughs) (laughs) we've got Um, 10 million so crazy guy talking about watches again i know um uh, you know, uh, to come full circle, I mean, I put as much as I can online and, uh, and frankly, I encourage, uh, anyone who's interested in this stuff to look into it. Um, frankly, you know, watchmaking on antiques is a great job. It's a nice career and there's a huge demand. I turn stuff away every day that I don't particularly want to work on or that's outside of just and it's just not because I can't do it. It's because I don't. I'm just narrowing my field just to keep the demand, just because of the demand. Mm-hmm. So I I always encourage you know young young people if you're looking for an, an interesting job that you may not have thought of, you know, look into it because uh, it's fascinating. There's no end to what you can learn. Um, I mean, it'll just kill you. I mean, there's no end to what you can learn. I mean, it's one of those things that uh, is absolutely bottomless. You can never develop enough skills or or have the right tools or learn everything there is to learn about every different kind of watch that's out there. Um, So it's a fascinating field, and it's of extremely high demand, and I always encourage people to look into it. And, and, you know, it's not rocket science. Um, The basics of how you work on watches is not uh, super complicated, you learn right away if you're really interested in it that it, you know, it's it's a bottomless pit of trying to understand stuff and learn things. But so um, you're saying that Andrew's got a job with you as soon as he moves up. To <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, I always, I always encourage people to look into it, and I especially encourage people not to sit down and decide to take apart their grandfather's watch thinking they can fix it without trying to learn something first because you'll break it. Yeah. Well, it's already broken, so what's the problem? 
and then you get more parts. But by all means, go buy a thirty or forty dollar broken watch on eBay and try to fix it. So, so Jeff, I you know we're gonna have to probably transition. I wanted to ask you one question before we transition out, uh, um, which, which is which is kind of pointed, and, and I think it, it it sort of stems from some of the things you said. Are you seeing a surge of business? Um, due to folks inheriting baby boomer watches, you know, the baby boomers are this huge generation. And, and I think folks that follow politics are keenly aware that the baby boomers are, are in the, the first processes of dying. Um, yes. Are you seeing a surge of business as a result of that? Yeah. As I say, there, there are basically these two types of customers. The other, the third type would be collectors and, you know, actual aficionados that have lots of watches, but sure. you see like old people, older people and young people that inherit something from an older person. And it is generational and all antiques work that way. There's sort of a first wave of antiques where, uh, you know, a generation is passing on things. And that first wave is where all that stuff just ends up on eBay because somebody just wants to dump it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. with watches and with uh, vintage watches, vintage American watches and pocket watches, that stuff was going on uh, in the '90s and early 2000s. That's when uh, you know people that were adults in the '30s and '40s were passing on. Yeah, but then what happens is um, the second wave comes where. People have bought that stuff, and now it's an antique. Now it becomes categorized, it becomes identified, and then it's more valuable and more sold for more money. And that's kind of where we are now. We're easing into this period where, you know, you can't buy. When I first got into this, I bought. With, I talk about you know buying a broken watch to work on. I, I used to buy a broken watch on eBay for ten dollars. Now you can't buy a broken watch on eBay for less than fifty dollars. Sure, the 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 passed upon has become the passer honor. Exactly, yeah. it's a, it's sort of a second tier of antiques, and actually all things. It's not just watches. I I I think almost everything works that way. Sure. So you figure out uh, what people are passing on right now, and you can buy it cheaper than it will be in twenty years. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of the nature of antiques is you have you, you have the sentimental people and the collector people. So I have exactly. one last question for you, and it is, what does your personal watch collection look like? <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> he laughs. That big, huh? <laughs> it's an embarrassing number of watches. <laughs> no, there's no such thing. Um, well... I inherited some watches from my grandfather. I've added to that collection substantially in terms of antique watches. Um, Watches I wear every day, I really like. I know you guys talk about this kind of thing. I love like bargain watches or watches where you get a lot for your money. That's our jam. I'm wearing a Seiko 5 right now. Hell yeah. Which color? (laughs) Yeah, what are you wearing? Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, Seiko 5. I have a Seiko 5 with a black dial right now. Yeah. Okay. I have two of them. That, you should, you, you know, for what Seiko fives have been going for in the last, in the last, you know, five years, it, it feels yeah. like everybody should own several of them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause pretty I do, soon they'll be worth a million. I do have vintage, um, you know, uh, wrist watches and I, and I do occasionally carry pocket watch. Um, 
you know, that lots to choose from. They're just different ones. Um, and I have a few uh, especially valuable ones and a lot of... Um, in the way of pocket watches or wrist watches? Uh, no, pocket watches. Uh, probably the most valuable wrist watch I have, modern stuff. I do have an RGM. Um, mm-hmm. But that, I guess that's probably the priciest one I have. And that's that a no-shit watch. So RGM yeah. is a Portland company uh, that I think a lot of our folks are not going to be super familiar with, but they may have heard of. RGM is a Portland company that is doing whole hog start to finish watch manufacturing and they're a freaking cool company uh how, how did you how did you connect with them what, what what's your uh what's your I don't, even, I don't even remember um i think I, you know it's second hand uh so i don't even remember it's been a while it, worth it that yeah their watches are so cool I, i've only ever seen pictures i've never seen one in person and maybe we'll have to schedule a time to to link up in person and uh just if for no other reason, just to just to see. You know, my my antique watches. You know, basically it's the same kind of thing. And it, my grandfather followed the same kind of scheme with watches that he saved or set aside. He liked to assemble things that he saw every day in the shop. So they're not necessarily the most expensive or finest railroad watches or whatever. Some of them are. There's a few like weird ones in there. They're good. You know, like. Uh, unusual for some reason but they're mostly like uh, an, a good a good solid assortment of things that people would use every day um in different eras i think that's you know just as interesting as that's, that's the na- nature of historical artifacts we don't we don't find historical artifacts or or antiques even that were one of a kind because those don't survive there was only one we've our yeah. our understanding of history is informed by commonplace items and exactly. I, I think those, those those may not be special in the moment but they become so special over time and i i yeah. there's really yeah, something to be said for that people actually had you know when they were in use you know um it, yeah good yeah it's kind of nice to see that assortment of you know what what people spent their money on you know and these are you know pricey items so um you know they're what people wanted and what people used every day well, like, Jeff, I kind of like that. Jeff, Love I it. feel like we could talk to you about this stuff for literally hours. We are about an hour now, and, and some of our folks are going to be itching for uh, to be able to move on to the next to the next podcast. Uh, and so we try to we try to remain aware of that. We we always every week we talk about other stuff, and so we're going to do that. We're going to do that now, although I'm lamenting a little bit not to be able to... We're going to have to have you back, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm lamenting a little bit not to be able to talk about uh, talk to you more. Um, you, you know, would you be up for coming back on and talking about something more specific in the future? Yeah, sure. No Fantastic. problem. Love it. Fantastic. Well, this is the time. Then we're going to talk about other things we like. And I know, Andrew, I know you've got a thing. I have a thing. Other things. What do you got, Andrew? So, via Armchair Expert, I learned of a Armchair author. Expert, which we've talked about on the podcast. We have, before. and for those yeah. of you who aren't listening, give it a listen. We're we're a hundred, we're north of a hundred episodes deep into this podcast. So, and they're about two hours each. So you not, have not into our podcast, but into Armchair Expert. No, yeah, into, into his. He's they're they're yeah they're deep. So just remind folks, <clears throat> Armchair Expert. 
Armchair Expert is a podcast hosted by Dax Shepard and Monica Padman. And they, in the, in the beginning, just kind of had their famous friends. And then uh, I want to say it was Katie Couric came on. She actually reached out to them. was like, hey, I'd love to be a guest. And she was their first like non-friend. Like first time I'm meeting you is on the podcast format. And since then, they've produced north of 100 episodes. And they have a huge variety of people, obviously, because they interview a different person every week. And they're poignant, and it the, just one of the best podcasts out there. Oh, absolutely! I mean, yeah. they won the iHeartRadio. They were the best new podcast of last year. Uh, they interview great people, and they they create this environment of of real vulnerability, so you get a sense of who these who these celebrities really are. Uh, and they they've got a segment they call experts on not a segment a series they call experts on expert where they interview. Uh, experts on things like not just not just normal people. So they have they have doctors and scientists. Uh, they had Bill Nye on, but the the person I just listened to is uh, Samin Norsat. I I don't I we've talked about the bruschetta bruschetta thing. S A M N no S A M I N N O R S A T, and she is a author, a chef, a documentarian type person. Uh, so she was on the show and talked about her Netflix miniseries called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, of which there is a book of the same title. Which is so fantastic. So it, fantastic. Both the Netflix series and the book, both wonderful. So I watched Fat uh, today, and I was yelling, just just yelling while I was watching this, because they so she's in Italy for the entirety of the episode, and she's interviewing people who are making uh, olive oil. And then she's at this butcher shop where they're butchering pigs. And what was the what was the bread? They made a uh, focaccia. They made a focaccia bread. That that I, is so <clears throat> wonderful. I was yelling noises of pleasure at my television, and I'm watching this guy butcher this hog, and I I was screaming at him like just with with pure unadulterated joy. And then they have this dinner where they have homemade pasta with ragu and it's traditional Italian. You guys can't see my hand motions, but I'm so excited. There's a lot. Of, there with, are a lot with of this motions. really traditional homemade ragu <laughs> and all these cured meats and a pig, like a whole roast pig. And I, oh, y'all just do yourself four hours of fun and watch this mini series. You, you know, there's more, there's more fun than that. So Samin is uh, this fantastic. I mean, she's just this wonderful human being and she's she's a content creator, uh, but but you know the best kind of content creator, not like Andrew and Everett, where oh, no, where we we, we create content based on sub stuff we don't really know about. She is such an expert, and she's such a consumer at the same time. And, and uh, it is really just uh, in, in terms of uh, in, in terms of the nerdiness level that that gets me off. It's very high level it, stuff and it's it's far more than cooking and the writing her story is so great and yeah. she is committed to the soup to nuts of food and exploring how food affects everyone in their daily lives whether it's access or inaccessibility or all the trimmings that go along with the disparity associated with food availability and, and you know the very idea of the salt fat you you know it, it's the idea that that the food we eat, which is so fundamental, right? Everybody eats food. Not everybody is into watches, obviously. Not everybody's into exercise, but everybody is into food. Or because food's into them. <laughs> it, it's a, but yeah, that's true. It's a biological necessity. 
and she is so uh, forgiving of, you know, all of the, the proclivities that we have regarding food and, and and I say forgiving I don't know that that's the right word but understanding understanding it's just such an incredible exploration into this thing that's that seems so basic at times uh and at the end of the day it's really not basic uh it, it's this very complex uh ideology and philosophy and it's wonderful wonderful fantastic I really love that you brought this up I I just loved watching it I I could have watched it on mute <laughs> So uh, I've got another thing. Do it. I've got another thing. So my other thing is a book. And this is a book that I don't know that I loved. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I don't know that I loved. And and Was it in English? Yeah, it was in English. Because I can understand if you didn't love a book that was not in English. Well, it's interesting that you ask if it was in English. Because the reason I didn't love it is because it's written in a language that is English but the subtext of the language is so foreign that at times it was very, very difficult to understand. Um, so you start off in this, it, it's a sci-fi book. So, so I'll just light it up. I'll break the ice. This is a book called nine Fox Gambit. Okay. It sounds weird. This is book one of a trilogy called the machineries of empire. This is a he book that, me has won New York Times uh, Awards, Locus Award. It's been nominated for the Hugo Nebula Arthur C. Clarke Award. So very highly regarded book. So it should have been good. It's fantastic. And and when I say, I say I didn't love it, but I also loved it. And the reason I didn't love it is because it was dense. It is dense. So so just to, if, if you want to turn the podcast off now, go ahead. Although you should stick around because I'm pretty sure that Mr. Sexton's going to have another thing. So wait at least for that. But it starts off in a combat scene. It, and a combat scenes in and of themselves are divisive. Some people hate them. Some people hate them. I normally don't love them. They're hard to write. But this is not just They're a combat scene. It's a combat scene in a world where combat has been completely altered by uh, a completely... Uh, reality-defining shift. So it's either in the future or in some alternate universe, and I don't know yet. I actually don't know the answer to that question. But Because you haven't finished it or because you haven't finished the trilogy? Uh, I just don't know. I finished the book. I haven't finished the trilogy. But I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, what I will tell you is it's very challenging. It's, as a challenge. it's not an easy book to read, but it's so good. It's so good. Even as challenging as it was and as hard as it was, it's super duper good. And I blasted through it. You know, that's always my sort of threshold for how good yeah. is a book? It, it, how how hard is it for me to get back into it? That's my thing for movies. If I check my watch, I don't like the movie. That's right. On principle, if I have to check my watch to see how much time has passed, I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna give you a good review. So this book is not short, and I have blasted through it because I want to know what happens next. But there are times when I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Because I have no clue. I don't know what's happening. I literally don't know what's happening in the book. So that's that's some people don't love that. I don't love it. And I'll tell you, that has altered my my affection for the book because so many times I didn't know what was happening. I feel like this is a book that I could read five or six times. I think this is going to be one of those books. And and as long as the writing keeps up, this is going to be one of those. It's, it's sort of Philip, Philip K. Dick. Okay. Maybe that's the charm of it is that you don't know if it's an alternate universe or the future. That's something like that. That kind of mystery keeps the 
keep some excitement alive. Like, am I working in the past? Am I working in the future? Is this five years from now? Is this Black Mirror times? Is it right? right. What, what's happening? Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it, you know I, I I struggle a little bit to uh, I struggle a little bit to talk about things that I'm I'm like on the fence about, and I'm totally on the fence about this book, but. I'd recommend it. I, I think that there's some of you that are going to hate it. I think that there's some of you that are going to be like, that is fucking amazing. Uh, I don't know. I, I think check it out. I read this book. I think it's fantastic, but it's also really hard. So that's my other thing. Jeff, are you there still? Did you just leave us? <laughs> no, I'm still here. Fantastic. Good to hear. Do you have any other things that you'd like to talk about? Uh, are there things besides watches? You know, that's a good mentality to have. (laughs) Oftentimes we do that. We say, well, I've got another thing, but it's watch related. And then and then the other one of us will say, you can't talk about that. Another thing. But uh, we'll we'll give you some leniency here. So uh, tell us something that you're into that's maybe uh, indirectly watch related or or, or not at all watch related. Uh, Well, what I'm mostly into is uh, is either watches or parrots. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so in in our pre-talk we uh we discussed the fact that uh we might hear your parrot in the background and i and i do believe i i heard her her yeah you might have yeah i, I heard her once just, and i loved sleep. it uh ever had to mute me because i i got a little bit excited i started laughing so he, he muted my microphone briefly while i composed myself uh <clears throat> does, does she talk oh yeah a lot yeah Ooh. What kind of uh, yeah? What kind of things have, have you taught her to say? Parrots. We have we have three parrots. Um, we have two cockatiels, which are smaller. Uh, they're very personality heavy birds who don't necessarily talk, but they but they sing. One of them sings tunes quite a bit. Like like mimics tunes. Like what? Like like mimics a tune or or just just yeah. self generated whistle it whistle a tune. Um, oh, that's yeah, cool. they, they, he's learned. Uh, yeah, and then uh, an African gray parrot um, is the one that's here, um, and they're um, very intelligent, and uh, it's quite an interesting experience to live with an African gray parrot. They're sometimes described as um, living with a bipolar five year old on crack. You, you know, I was just about to ask how careful, like, I have a four-year-old and I have to be, you know, so mostly careful about the kinds of things that I say because, and even even good things that I say, like, I, I can say, well, <laughs> like, things like, well, that was a mistake. I, that comes back to me. So how careful do you have to be around um, yeah. birds that yes, mimic it, behavior it, and yeah. sounds? It's, it's, it's mostly about the, uh, you know, the... Uh, inflection or, or emotion that you express something with. <laughs> so, so be careful what you say when you drop something on the floor or oh yeah my my four-year-old is is really really understands the nuances of different curse words and their contextual appropriateness <laughs> that, that will be picked up on very quickly now parrots are about as smart as animals come right yeah um gray parrots in particular will outperform a human nine-year-old child on some cognitive tests. That's amazing. What That's What fantastic. is the worst thing you have accidentally taught one of your birds to say, if you're comfortable telling us? No, I, and if not, no, just maybe I, a funny I, I, thing. Honestly, I don't really have anything like that. No, there isn't really anything like that. Um, it's just more... Uh, it's just more... I, I am not a... I haven't been a bird person my whole life. This is a fairly recent thing, just in the last few years. It's been quite an experience. I can tell you that. I mean... 
just because they are so incredibly intelligent. You cannot, people think their dogs and cats are smart. I've had dogs and cats, but that's, it's, you're in a whole other ballpark here. And, uh, that's the amazing thing. Um, what they know, what they know about what's going on around them. And they do talk and respond, you know, carry on little conversations and little snippets of back and forth. I mean, you know, like my parrot here, at, um, the African gray Harlan, is her name now she will she knows the names of all her favorite foods and will ask for them she we have an outdoor aviary and she says she wants to go outside she says when she wants to go for a walk she says when it's time to go to bed or time to get up or whatever she, i mean she talks um a lot and she means what she says you when know you say I on mean, a walk do you mean she like rides your shoulder and you go on a walk outside uh, oh i have a okay. uh i have a uh special backpack <laughs> believe it or not <laughs> uh, yeah i'm the guy walking around the neighborhood with a bird I... in the back yeah uh, it's a, it's kind of a it looks like a pet carrier kind of thing but it's a backpack it's specially made to be extra durable um for for this kind of bird yeah i love that i want to see it uh how, how affectionate are these guys? so how how are these are these um, birds it it depends. They vary from species to species. Uh, you know, the, the Harlan uh, gray parrot is, they're kind of a, she's a little bit of a one-person bird. Um, she's pretty attached to me. Um, I She likes to cuddle a little bit. Um, she likes to have her head scratched um, when she's in the mood for it. Sounds kind of like um, a cat. Like very or, much on her terms. Or a wife. Uh, yeah, 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 also that. <laughs> they're not as physical as a cat say um but they're more physical than some people think um the cockatiels not so much they used to be when they were younger they used to be a little more um physical but they're not so much anymore but that's because there are two of them and they kind of um interact with each other more mm-hmm. way now are these parrots rescues or are they like going to be kind of family heirloom because kind of uh, I understand yeah, they they live forever. Yeah, that's a, that is a whole other topic. Okay, yeah. then we won't we won't even crack that can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're not they're not rescues, but you're absolutely right in that. Um, yeah, they have very long lives, and people who are interested in having birds in their lives need to take that into account. It's like um, there's a lot of birds out there that need homes because they outlive their owners and it's a that's a very real thing very real big problem with these animals and um well there's a lot there's a lot you could say about this i mean it's um it's a deep issue and the, and the, and we're talking about um not not the cockatiels but the african gray parrot like harlan they are um i think they've recently been declared functionally extinct in the wild uh they are endangered for sure um and that's you know, due to habitat depletion and poaching for the pet trade. Um, it is illegal uh, to, you know, to sell, to, to, to transport parrots across borders for, um, for the pet trade. Right. But it does still happen. Now, ours are not, there, ours are not wild-caught birds. That's pretty rare in the U.S., I think, is my feeling about it, as far as I can tell. But... Uh, the the but Asia and the Middle East 
are still like kind of hot markets for um, illegally caught birds. And that's a huge problem. Sure. Huge, huge problem. Uh, and it's really unfortunate. But, um, you know, habitat loss is a, a real thing. It's happening. I mean, you can't, there isn't a, there isn't a habitat to return these birds to. Yeah. In most right. cases, it's gone. I mean, the, the uh, wild populations that are non-native in areas where escaped birds, like in the, there's, there's large parrot populations in many, many states in the United States that are wild, that are, that are escaped birds. They're not native, but they live, you know, as wild populations. I was not Those aware birds, of that. Yeah, they're, it's quite common, actually, especially in um, warmer climates, but not in su some surprising places. Sure. There's a lot of parrots in New York State. There's a huge population there of different species now but the but those and the ones that exist in people's homes are now the principal genetic uh diversity pool for many of these species that uh, as they the, the ones in the wild are just they've just declined past the point of no return well you you know i'll tell you uh i feel like we probably could have had a complete podcast on uh on these super smart birds. You should see my face right now. Right? No, we're we're both a little we're both a little awestruck. So uh, I think that's fantastic. Well, uh, you'd have to see the bird. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, maybe next time we get you on, we'll get one of these birds. We'll get one of these birds on 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 air and, and figure out what we can do. So, Jeff, we're so thankful uh, that you joined us. Um, I, I I'd like to. One of the things we do uh, when we have people on is. Uh, give you 30 seconds just to sort of plug what you're doing plug where you're at um and and just to tell people where to find you tell, tell people what, what you're about well i really i really try hard to have everything concisely on the main page go to make it very easy at elgintime.com and there's links there to all the major bits of information and how to get a hold of me if you have questions or whatever, and I'm very happy to even if uh, even if you got a watch that isn't necessarily something I work on or something, I'm very happy to try to answer questions about it, and I I do that all the time. So I get email every day from people about all kinds of strange things, um, and that's fine too. So elgintime.com, that's the best way to find you. And can I ask you about this logo? Is that uh, it looks to me like uh. Uh, like a Led Zeppelin uh, album oh, cover. Uh, I've used a couple of different logos. All the logos I've used in the past, including the one I think you're referring to, are Elgin logos. Fantastic. Oh. Fantastic. That is Father Time. Huh. Now, oh, if you look wonderful. at it closely, you'll see he's discarding an hourglass and picking up a pocket watch. Oh, I thought it was a bag of money. It's a little hard to see. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's wonderful. That's, this that's is early days, early days of branding. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's from that's a 19th century logo. Wow, it's wonderful. Uh, the idea is that Father Time is throwing away his hourglass and picking up a modern watch. Wow, that that's wonderful, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you, you know, please, folks, check Jeff out on ElginTime.com or ElginTime at at Instagram. Uh, I think it's at Elgin time uh, because there is so much information here and it's just absolutely wonderful. Uh, Encyclopedic. It, fantastic. Fantastic. So we're going to cut now because we could just keep going for hours and hours, but thank you for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20. Please feel free to check us out on Instagram at 
40 and 20 or if you'd like to support us patreon.com slash 40 and 20 that's where we get most of the support for the episodes support us with equipment uh software uh, all of our recording fees that we have to pay every month. We're super appreciative of all the folks that support us. Uh, if that's not something that you're interested in doing, these episodes are always going to be free and coming to you. Don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye. <laughs>